It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. And joining us today are The Times' very own Matt Dickinson and Gary Jacob. Coming up, we'll tell you which Premier League manager wants red cards for diving. But first, mutiny at the Emirates. The front page of the game today says mutiny. And it uh, all centres on Granite Xhaka, who faces being stripped of the captain's armband after swearing at Arsenal fans who applauded his substitution. The Gunners let a two-goal lead slip to draw two all at home with Crystal Palace as Xhaka was involved in an extraordinary standoff with the uh, Arsenal supporters. His furious reaction came as he was substituted, appearing to swear at the fans after being booed before tearing off his shirt and disappearing down the tunnel. Uh, Arsenal had gone ahead very early on in this game. They were 2-0 up inside nine minutes. Palace then got themselves back into it after a VAR intervention as Luka Milivojevic scored from the spot before Jordan Ayew's header in the second half rescued a point for the visitors. But the result aside, let's discuss Granit Xhaka. And, and Matt, from what you saw of his behaviour, do you think he's in danger of losing the Arsenal captaincy? Um, well, I guess we could say it's... a bit of a surprise he got it in the first place um, <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have been my obvious choice I think his just his form has not been good enough for that matter you know his, his um, the Arsenal I've seen this season Gwendouzi has been you know outshone him um, in the midfield in, in in most facets I think it says something about the Arsenal of now that he has got the captaincy that there is a that there is a sort of lack of alternatives I always think a, you know a good team um probably should throw up three or four captains and I think that you know that, say that that shows uh, a certain weakness at Arsenal and I think you know I've got some sympathy for him in a sense of you know when you're getting stick from your own fans um, you know that must be a pretty horrible feeling and, and I you know I, I, I don't think it was a clever response um, but it was clearly a highly emotional one and and I thought it was fascinating just seeing on, I thought Match of the Day did a good job highlighting it last night of of the fact that he was hiding from the ball mm. for a long period, and I thought that was fascinating because it it showed that here is a guy, you know, his form has not, um, yeah, has been a bit all over the place, but his confidence is gone. Here's a guy who is, you know, say should be there, you know, acting as the the sort of fulcrum, taking the ball off the defence, starting to build stuff, and. Yeah, he looked like his his confidence was so disappeared that he was he was hiding even from a simple pass, and that's where I have a bit of sympathy for a guy. You know, it must the 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 feeling of being you know in abject form and and 
you know, bereft of confidence being out there must be a, a pretty horrible feeling. Mm. How much responsibility, Gary, should we be aiming at Unai Emery then for this situation? I know that um, Xhaka got the armband after a player vote, but at the end of the day, mm. Emery didn't have to give him the armband. No. He could have questioned it, could have said, is he really the right person for us to be giving the, the, yeah. the armband to? Go back go back to when Emery was appointed. Mm. Um, he actually went out of his way to highlight how good... Xhaka was and how they had to build a team around him. So he, I think it's clear from day one that he felt he was an important player. Um, the other point is, um, I don't think Emery's bothered by the armband because he's got five captains. I just don't think he thinks of it like it, the way that we do in England. Right. So he's got five captains. He's got um, uh, Xhaka, Bamiyang, Bellerin, Lacazette and Ozil. You think two of them you could have question marks about and would you have a Bamiyang and Lacazette or Bellerin as your captain and Bellerin's not been out injured you haven't got Louise as your captain so I, I just don't think he thinks of it in the same way mm-hmm. um, so that's the sort of thing about uh, Xhaka but I kind of think the, the issue really sort of took away from Emery which is really that the, the fans now they, they, they were accepting of Emery last season in terms of he had to kind of get rid of the deadwood he had a difficult squad um, but they see now a much better squad they see a much more talented squad they see a, a squad that's got a lot of in theory a lot of firepower and they don't see any progress in terms of playing style uh, formation and actually a coherent th- uh, aspect on the pitch. And they look at it and they think Tottenham are t- struggling this year and they think the fourth place is theirs if you're an Arsenal fan. And Emery doesn't seem that he's got, he's kind of taken the team forward. Um, so it, in his defence, he's got new players and you kind of, he wants to kind of, you, you, he probably needs time to bed them in. But you, there hasn't seemed to be any progress. You look at the stats as well, they kind of, if anything, they've kind of gone slightly backwards. And obviously this is the third game in the week at Sheffield United. They were dismal. Uh, they were pretty dismal the other day against Vitoria. Um, and they weren't much better a few weeks ago against Watford when they were 2 nil up and then could have lost. I think there's been a quite a few. And they, I don't think there's been one game this season where actually Arsenal have actually played well. And I think that's the thing. It's just a culmination of things. And that's probably in the same with Xhaka as well. I think it's three years of Xhaka's mistakes that the fans are probably just a little bit sick of now. Mm. And they've looked at him play this, the, the passes and the tackles and give away penalties. And I think they've probably just sort of, it's just all coming to a bit of a head now. Um, and I think there's probably going to be some sort of, you, you feel like there's going to be change over, over the next six months, certainly by the summer. Xhaka, of course, might not be the best player and perhaps shouldn't be the captain when it comes to on-field matters. But why, Gregor, do we think it is a one-way street that supporters can be upset but players can't? Who thinks that? That's the well, thing. certain fans... Have Clearly they do, yeah, but they're wrong. I, I thought it was a disgrace, really. I think, you know, sympathy... You, you have sympathy for, for Xhaka because... But you've got to have sympathy for the entire team. You saw the reaction, even... Torreira was like mm. aghast by what was what he was hearing, and these are the guys they voted for him as their captain. Even whether that's right or wrong, and we've, as we've said, there's not many options. There wasn't, you know, I'm not sure there's anyone better really. Mm. Um, but to have to be booed off by your own fans like that is the most mortifying sort of feeling in the world. And Are you speaking from experience? Or? <laughs> <laughs> not booed off, but I've been. Probably twice in fifteen years, so not all the time, guys. <laughs> but I have, yeah, I have been booed. Um, I remember actually being booed once. I was played out of position. For, that's my excuse. For, uh, I guess, I guess the only equivalent we've got is been going on Twitter and just being. Yes, well, we get being, it all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what you feel? Um, oh God, I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, absolutely horrible. And 
the, the thing that's so self-defeating, you know, yeah. Arsenal. I, did you see there was when on match of the day again when when he was walking off, and you could see some supporters in the background, and there was one smashing his chair. He was punching his chair, and like the anger that you could see and sort of sense in that in that stadium mm. was completely disproportionate to what. I mean, the team were playing bad, but one thing is, Xhaka, you know, he's going to try. I think the only only reason anyone should ever be booed is if they're not given a hundred percent. And I think he he does that. He's yeah, he does some makes some dunderheaded decisions, gives away penalties and free kicks. But it's self defeating as the supporters are damaging their own team. And this is you know, it's Arsenal aren't the only group of fans to do it, but it's it's absolutely idiotic. That thing about like a trend, that's why I was sort of raised that I thought that was interesting about when he was shying from the ball because that often gets mistaken for not trying, doesn't it? When you know, when a player is you know, they they're they're starting to shy away from from the action, and then therefore that looks like they're they're not putting in all the effort. When actually, all it is is that they're they're just thinking, you know, I don't trust myself on the ball. Yeah, and that's understandable, isn't it? And it's interesting what you were mentioning there about the damage to the team, Gregor, because and and as already mentioned, Lucas Torreira looked in tears uh, when he saw what what Xhaka w- was going through. This could have a an even more detrimental effect, couldn't it? Because could it not lead to some players thinking, I don't know if I want to go out on that pitch. Well, it certainly won't help confidence, and and there's already not a great relationship between the players and the supporters. And the club generally, you know, it's actually a kind of thinly veiled secret that footballers don't particularly like their fans at the best of times because they see them as fickle and and able to, you know, if Jacob bangs one in the top corner in a couple of weeks' time, he'll, he'll be lauded and mm. he'll run over to them and well, they maybe won't now, but you know, they, that that is a kind of the atmosphere in the changing room will not be good after this and they will not be sort of very supportive of. Of the way that that was, you know, the, the atmosphere in that stadium. Obviously, his reaction is is why we're talking about it even more. Would you have ever reacted like that, or got close to reacting like that? It was a, it was a silly reaction, but mm. it was a human reaction. It's mm. not, you know, people are calling for for him to apologise to the supporters. I think it should be the other way around. If anything, like he's he's he, he he's playing badly. He's perhaps not a good enough player for Arsenal, but I think anyone would would agree that he gives gives his all when he goes on the pitch and to boo him is, is just ridiculous. And Gary, you said he's, what, one of five captains. Mm. They've obviously seen something in him to have voted him as a captain. I mean, he was a Swiss captain at a pretty young age, yeah. wasn't he? And so he's not, he's obviously got something about it and everyone was looking at him and he was, he was one that was highly rated in Germany before he came here. But I just think, I just think, the fan reaction is just a, a combination of things over a period of time. It, it, it's not just Sunday. It's just it's going back over three years. And I think it's just in that one moment where it's just all come out. Um, so it, can uh, he come back from this? That's a good question. Um, you know, yeah, probably yes. But in the long run, is he is he right to be in front of Arsenal's back four? Probably no, is probably the answer. Um but, you know, he's, he's going to have to come back because he's not going to move anywhere for six months. So they're mm. going to have to find a way to, to, to kind of get around it. But I, I, I just feel it's all kind of going away. It's all sort of distracting from memory when he's the bigger question here, really, that people are looking at. Is he the man to take the club forward? Can Emery get on top of all the multiple of issues? Which, uh, you know, remember, Emery's a head coach. He was not really a manager. So he's there, I coach the things, but these are all wider issues. Mm. And has he got it in his repertoire to do that? He was a relatively smaller clubs until PSG. I don't know if he has it. And I think a lot of Arsenal fans will say he's 
thanks very much, you've done a good job, you've, but we want to kind of move forward now. I remember we were talking in slightly different circumstances, obviously, but about um, Kepa, weren't we, after, yeah. you know, and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and there was that idea of, how oh, can he ever play for the club again? You know, he's going to have to, prestri- you know, um, example, sort of yeah. apologise profusely. And, and, you know, a week later, it's, it's dealt with, uh, you know, and I think Gary's right. I think for, for Xhaka, maybe this is, you know, this is just a sort of a bad week, but for Emery, it's about making sure it's, you know, it's not a bad season, and that's the bigger, much the that's bigger much issue. Bigger picture, yeah. Liverpool needed two second-half goals to come from behind to beat Tottenham at Anfield and restore their six-point lead at the top of the table. Harry Kane scored after just 48 seconds to give Spurs a 1-0 lead at half-time, but Jordan Henderson equalised six minutes after the break before Mo Salah thumped the winner from the penalty spot to extend Liverpool's unbeaten run at home to 45 league games. So it was a terrific comeback by Liverpool. Gary, was it a, a performance of champions, would you say? Yeah, willpower and keeping on going, finding different ways to open the door. I mean, and people said they didn't play well, but they did create a load of chances before half-time. You know, they could have perhaps been 2-3-1 three, three, up at half-time. Yeah. So I think that was... They did show great just just carrying on and carrying on and just banging on the door and banging on the door. And mm. you have to give them the credit for two weeks in a run. They had to pick up... They could have picked up zero points and they picked up four points in Man United and Tottenham. So... Um, and that, that's to their credit, because as well as they played last season and parts of this season, that's that probably is a, a better performance by them than, than anything else in, in relative terms. Mm. So, um, yeah, willpower to strength to carry on. Kind of faith in the yeah. faith in the system, faith yeah. in the, the yeah. way they play, and yeah. and like a commitment to not not changing it. Even when they as soon as went a goal behind, they still kind of just swung back into the into motion, and it didn't let didn't let it affect them at all. And they're just relentless. It's just the wear wore Tottenham down the further it went. I think Tottenham 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 deserve some credit in in yeah. terms of you know, they could have gone two 0 up even when the ball was flashed across the box just before half time, I think it was. And then Ali cut it back again, you know, there was two chances and then Son hit the crossbar in the second half. It could have you know, could have been different. Some question marks about the way Pochettino set the team up in terms of having to ask Two of the more creative players, Ericsson and mm. uh, and so on, to deal with with Liverpool's fullbacks, but Liverpool, like we said, I mean, I've said so often in this podcast, have not really clicked into top gear. I think that's probably the closest that they came to mm. to finding top gear. I think this season, and and they needed to really to to overcome Tottenham, but they deserved to win in I the end. Tottenham also showed that there were ways to get at Liverpool. I thought they were quite yeah. long ball at times. Tottenham into Kane and playing off him and they did show that obviously Lovren is the weakness but they did seem to exploit that and Tottenham did show there are ways to get at this team which I thought was to their credit and in behind Trent Alexander-Arnold on a couple of occasions who everyone you know were gushing about his, his performance rightly so but there were a couple of occasions particularly Danny Rose as well at the end could have scored an equaliser spacing behind them is, and, and stopping crosses is sometimes a weakness still well, the decisive goal came from Salah then, from the spot, after Serge Aurier fouled Sadio Mane. Gary Neville commenting on the game called him reckless and that every time he sees him play it, it's either a yellow card, red card, or he gives a goal away. Gary Lineker also tweeted, Aurier, what were you thinking before Roy Keane on TV called the Tottenham fullbacks dumb and dumber? Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, is Aurier becoming a liability for Tottenham? 
Um, I think there's, yeah, there was a, a reputation, shall we say, for erraticism before he came, you know, um, to uh, to Tottenham. I think he was, uh, as far as I understand, a sort of Levy. You know, I can get him for what seems a decent price for his reputation signing more than, shall we say, the manager handpicking him. Um, so I think there was a bit of a sort of like, this, yeah, let's take a little bit of a punt on a guy with with a, a lower fee than. Um, you might expect from the the sort of caliber of club he played for, I think. Uh, but I think he has proven to be yeah, erratic. Um, I didn't think this was some sort of horrendous no. example of it. Ultimately, he actually starts to make a good clearance under pressure, and to try and finish, you know, that clearance under pressure, he just gets, I think, a little bit unlucky that Mane is just there and alert and puts his foot in. I mean, Mane hasn't nicked the ball off him. He's just managed to get a leg in front of him in time. I can see what Aurea exactly was trying to do. Mm. Um, so, I don't, I, yeah, I, I think, but I think the trouble is he comes with baggage now. He's yeah. come with, and he came with baggage since the day he arrived. And I think, you know, we, we tend to be, you know, alert to that. So, anytime he does make a mistake, um, it becomes part you know, seem to be part of, of his issue and he's not, you know, he hasn't done a good enough job either of getting rid of that reputation. Mm. Uh, let's hear the Defenders' Union over there because I heard you go, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, is it unfair the way yeah, everyone's been talking about him? Well, uh, I completely agree with Matt. I think, you know, overall, yes, he's not, he doesn't inspire confidence but he made a good tackle and Manny was very smart and sort of wily to just get his get his body in between them. Uh, it's just one of those moments where he's, as soon as you've done it, you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Mm. Um, so yeah, I think it was very harsh, but I think, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that Roy Keane's making a good living out of just now, <laughs> just just hammering these guys and mixing things up in this guy's sports studio. Oh, he's good for the sound bites, isn't he? Um, <laughs> but, but probably for Tottenham, it's more symptomatic of the fact that most Tottenham fans will say, well, why is he playing at right back? Because... They sold Trippier without an alternative and they tried to get Wan-Bissaka but didn't want to pay the fee and they've ended up with two right-backs and, well, Pochettino says he's got 11 defenders, he's got fourth, who's been fit for two weeks and played twice for Argentina and he he says he's going to be the right-back but yet he doesn't pick him. So I think for Tottenham fans it's kind of the wider thing about why is this guy playing at right-back when fourth is probably not, though he might not be a right-back, he's probably just a bit more sensible. Um, to play there um, and probably the same for Danny who's having a difficult time all season really you know he walked out of the mix zone the other week at, at Watford with his head down sort of had a difficult game and I think Ben Davis played well against Red Star there's no perhaps reason why Ben Davis shouldn't have been playing at left back and uh, I, th- I think that's probably the sort of the, almost a bigger question and sort of um, you know why Levy didn't trade in the summer to, to get her out the door uh, who wanted to go get Carl Walker out the door and actually just get a proper right back mm. you know which is probably all part of the whole thing to do with Pochettino and Levy and what's going to happen it's like you know that's the biggest or just another pit in it so you know are you going to back me and get me the players I want or are you not are we going to as Matt says are we going to look for players who are a deal but you know, deals deals are there for a reason, aren't they? And it's because they've there's yeah. always some catch to them, possibly. You know, and deal. I mean, in Levy's defence, he made a deal a few years ago with Van der Vaart, and he got he. You know, it was a very good deal, and he gets lots of good deals. But there are other deals which you kind of think, Lucas Moura, or you think twenty five million on each. You think really maybe you should spend fifty million on the on a one player <laughs> in the team. You know. Mm. Well, let's move further up the pitch when it comes to the Tottenham team and, and talk about Deli Alley because his performance against Liverpool, perhaps some might say, was again below par. And really, what, 
let's discuss what's happened to him. Just 23 years old, let's not forget. But in the Sunday Times this weekend, Graham Souness questioned his focus after suggesting the Tottenham player has stagnated as a footballer. He scored 32 goals in his first two seasons at Spurs, but managed just seven in 45 games last season. Souness said this of Ali. Two years ago, I thought Dele Ali was going to be a superstar, a modern-day goal-scoring midfielder from the same mould as Terry McDermott, my partner at Liverpool, or more recently, Frank Lampard at Chelsea. Somebody who could be relied upon to get well into double figures in terms of goals every season for their club. But if the football ladder has 10 rungs on it, Ali's still only on the fourth or fifth. Now, no Premier League midfielder has ever scored more goals than Ali's 43 by the age of 24. So is Souness right? Is he, Or is he being a bit harsh on uh, Ali, Matt? Um, I think it's a fair question because, you know, I think we're all sort of wondering, you know, not that he can't reclaim you know the momentum he had but it is definitely he's definitely lost a lot of it um you know he's not even he wasn't even in the england squad which is you know extraordinary to think about someone who you know seemed to be you know this was a guy who was just going to sort of cruise to 70 80 plus caps um i think there's a uh, it's hard to put your finger on one reason i do think you know, what, what player is he is is the first question i ask you know he he spent scored a lot of those goals effectively as a sort of Second, some of it as a second striker, as sort of more of a number ten position. Actually, if you're lining up a four-three-three, as as England certainly do now, Spurs often can do. You know, he, basically the expectation would be more that he would be a number eight, a sort of box-to-box type player, which is not necessarily, you know, certainly wasn't how he was playing. He had a quite a lot of back-to-goal. You know, when he was having that sort of heyday, he was doing a lot of stuff right around the penalty area, little flicks, you know, diving onto cutbacks and. You know, if you are playing as one of the the wider midfield players in a four three three, it's a different it's a different type role. It's very much, you know, driving the game forward, um, and it's a different requirement. And I think he's, I'd like to think he's capable of it. I think he should be versatile enough. I think he should have the skill set for it. But um, whether he's struggling to adapt to that different responsibility. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I think that's one issue: tactical, positional. I think. You know, attitude has. I'm not saying that he's. You know, he's sort of. This is one reason he's lost his way. But I know Gareth Southgate, even before he was dropped. This is going back some months. You know, did drop him for for matches, basically because he felt he needed a bit of a kick. Um, he felt that he had sort of gone into. He'd become a bit post, Yeah, post Russia, um, that he'd gone into a bit of a sort of cruise, and that um, he needed to see uh, more from him. So I, you know, I think there's, yeah, that the. There may be an issue there, you know. I think so. I say I don't mean there's one reason, but uh, and also I think, you know, he's not a million miles off um, of of sort of rediscovering himself. But I think, you know, as you say, you look at the stats themselves. That's that's they're pretty startling. But also, um, I just think, does he have a clear understanding in his head of the the player he wants to be, can be, should be? Because um, I think that has the requirements of him have changed over the last two or three years. His stats have gone. I was looking at the sort of stats earlier, and they certainly have gone down in terms of his goals and assists. But he would sort of, he said at the start of last season, he felt he needed to change his game because people he was new and therefore he, people didn't know how he was going to run into the area and what he could do. And then he had to adjust. And I think perhaps at the start of last season, he adjusted his game to perhaps try to 
pull defenders out of position and to try and create space for other players. Um, so his game, actually, he tried to widen his game to not just be a guy who would get in the box and score goals. Um, but then also, I was also looking at, he's had five hamstring injuries since 2017. Well, this is what I was going to say. And Pochettino in the summer said, he said, I'm worried about his hamstring. And I, yeah. I think that's one aspect. And also, he looks to be carrying weight. I think that's kind of an unsaid thing. But you look at him and he was quite skinny, wasn't he? Maybe because he's younger, but he looks to be, he's either bulked up or he's put on weight and he doesn't look as fast have got that kind of drive mm-hmm. you remember, remember we remember that goal against Real Madrid a few years ago wasn't it at the far post where he had that thing and he doesn't look like he's got that sort of but I think the most embarrassing thing of yesterday was the fact he was trying all these flicks and they were going to look and you look and you think just control and find your man you know the extra flicks just seem to be a little bit what you do when you're in the in the park and that mm. I think is a more symptomatic maybe of other things going on but the injuries is a factor that people may not well they seem to be forgetting because as you as you said gary five hamstring injuries he's only just coming back from a hamstring injury as well really that's going to play on his mind isn't it this hamstring problem that he's got yeah hugely disruptive um yeah i think i think you know it's understandable his stats are quite quite alarming uh and he was a player that you know so much so much is expected of and and hoped for but I think also you know people are talking about him falling out of love love with the game that was a kind of line in in Sunis's piece and uh, you know he's got to have some pretty good sources to close to him to to be sort of making that sort of claim and I think you know I'm a bit uncomfortable with him going down that route and even you know Roy Keane as he as he always does talking about his modelling and commercial things on the side as if you know concentrating your football it's in very old fashioned saying that most footballers nowadays have other things and if he's playing well nobody says anything about it. So I think, you know, yes, there are issues in terms of how he fits into the system. I agree with that. Injury issues as well definitely play their part, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves if we're saying that Deli Ali is kind of his attitude and his head's fallen off and he's, you know, he's fallen out of love with the, with the game. Mm. I mean, and that's one of the issues there is that Eric's not playing particularly well and hasn't played well for six months. So who is the, who's the one who's going to be putting Ali in? He's playing no, in a team no, as well that have you know, playing really badly yeah, this whole calendar year. a few issues there which are, which are sort of culminating. But um, yeah. Well, of other players born in 1996 in the Premier League, Damare Gray, for example, James Madison... Deli Ali has played more than twice the amount of Premier League minutes as them. You have the injuries that we've discussed, possibly burnout as well at such a, a young age when you're being made to play as often as you are. Could it be a case of too much too young? Um, I, I, I'm not sure t- too much, but I just think, you know, sometimes, you know, you see some those sort of unique cases where, you know, you get a Rooney or an Owen where they're just, you know, they're prodigious at 17, 18 and just sort of, you know, soar for the next five years. But you get other career trajectories where combination of what we just talked about, injuries and maybe, you know, rediscovering a role. I mean, Ross Barkley, you know, when he was 16, 17, everyone said, wow, this kid's going to be the next, you know, Gerard, Gascoigne, whatever. But yeah, look how you know, up and down and turbulent, you know, his career's been. And you could only say almost only now is he he discovering what is, you know, what his next sort of main uh, years as a professional are going to be and what type of role that's going to be and, and how to make the best of himself. So I think, you know, there are certain players that, yeah, it's 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 up up and down for, for a few reasons. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with Gregor. I mean, it's this sort of... <laughs> demolishing um, his uh, attitude to the game seems seems um, 
wider the mark at this point. But uh, yeah, I think it's it is right to be questioning what we are going to see of Ali. What's his best position? Where how we how is he going to rediscover it? But I, I don't think there's any sort of panic buttons yet. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, the Burnley boss, Sean Dyche, has slammed Chelsea's Callum Hudson-Odoi for diving and calls for players to be sent off in the future. The 18-year-old was shown a yellow card for simulation in the closing stages of Burnley's 4-2 defeat to the Blues at Turf Moor. Uh, the referee, Michael Oliver, had initially awarded a penalty but overturned his decision on VAR review. Let's hear from Dyche, who didn't hold back on Hudson-Odoi's antics after the full-time whistle. We go through a game where someone's blatantly cheated and it doesn't even get a mention now. But I find it amazing now. All I keep hearing is the respect. And you know, I get quite, it's bizarre. I get questioned about that whenever I talk about it. Like, oh, what's he going on about? And I go, what do you mean what I'm going on about? There's a time in our country and our football, we would never have accepted what is going on now. And no one wants to do anything about it. I find that incredible. Blatant dive tonight, yellow card. What's a yellow card going to do? Give him another chance to dive another week. I just don't see it. I, find, I keep hearing this respect. You've got to respect everyone in the stadium now. It seems. I think you've got to respect the chairs. But no one respects the game. I find it peculiar. And then I'll get stick about saying it again. I just find that even more peculiar. I don't really know why. But these are young men, fantastically talented young men, diving all over the place. Why? Why are they doing that? Just get on with the game because they're the future of it. So that was Sean Dyche's take then on diving. Has he got a point, Matt? Um, <laughs> I, I can't say I wake up every Saturday, <laughs> Saturday morning even, never mind You're more Tuesday worried about morning. VAR, aren't well, you? Well, exactly. But I mean, you know, it's not the diving epidemic. I... I'm not. I'm really not so sure. And and the idea of red cards, um, I just think that's. Um, you know, I understand a manager's frustration if he feels that he's been um, conned out of something. But in this case, um, that's one of the joys of VAR that we can now review these things. Let's let's put in a good word for VAR quickly while we can um, before I get shouted down. And uh, you know, and and I, I just don't think. A straight red card for a dive is is going to work. I just think there are too many, you know, real sort of grey areas around it. Um, so you know, yeah, I I, I, I think yeah, Sean Dyche is is um, he. It was a bit of a old school rant, and I, you know, I don't. I think it comes from an understanding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it comes from an understandable place, but I don't. I I think it's. I don't see an epidemic, and I don't see the need to suddenly sort of. 
wage war on diving. Mm, I, mean, I suppose the problem, and in particular with this Hudson Adoy incident, is there will be some people that will have said, yes, it's a, a, a foul, but there will be some people that will say it's a dive. So it's still, you know, how can you give a red card to well, somebody? Well, exactly. You don't and know? On, on that incident, you can see why the referee, you know, yeah. gave the decision he originally did. And, you know, if it's one of those classics where a foot goes out and a player. You know, it's the old, oh, he anticipates the foul yeah. sort of one. You know, he thinks I'm about to be tripped and I'm going to take evasive action. So it's not, you know, it's not like he's run into the box and just thought, the first, you know, to me, it didn't strike me that he was thinking, I'm going to do whatever it takes here to mm. con the world into a penalty. Yeah. UEFA tried to do it years ago with Eduardo when he dived against, I think it was at Celtic for Arsenal and then they got banned him and then they got overturned. So. Well, there is the, retrospective so, action that the FA overt- can take. You know, but I mean, Arsenal, Arsenal fought against it and won it on a legal yeah. basis. So it's very difficult, as Matt says, to kind of that grey area to prove mm. it, you know. But I mean, as a player yourself, Greg, would it, is it the most annoying thing to see someone diving? Yeah, but I mean, also the footballers are very clever now, you know. You see, yes. you see, even like Jamie Vardy's when he won that penalty at the the last for uh, Leicester's last goal at Southampton. He's the he's the master of throwing his legs across. Someone just when you're running at such high speed that you're gonna go over and it looks like a clear penalty and it is but it's also in mm-hmm. in, a, in some kind of shape or form a dive yeah um, so footballers are getting very good at it and I can't understand what where where uh, Sean Dyche is coming from but at the same time a booking is enough and you know referees are are much more sort of willing to to hand out bookings now they do it, do it very often Zaha was booked mm. at the Emirates and then it was obviously mm-hmm. rescinded after it was given as a penalty so you know that's enough of a, a deterrent I think for, for people to if you do that once you're not going to do it again because if you do you're off I've, I mean if I was going to wage war on anything it'd be more like the tactical foul I mean I've talked about you know if I was going to bring in sin bins mm. it would Gwen be Doozy. as much yeah I mean Gwendoosey you know <laughs> I mean uh, to, <laughs> fa- to call it a foul has been, has been extremely soft uh, I mean as, as, as was said at the time I think you know Itoji or someone would have been chuffed with that <laughs> yeah. one but you know that, that, that frustrate if, as a regular week to week what frustrates me more it's tactical fouling more than the amount of because the amount of it mm. and because it kills what is one of the best things in the game which is the counter-attack and it, and because however much they deny it most managers you know they don't just encourage it they coach it you know it's part it's you know we've seen it from man city we've seen mm. it from even you know mm. it's it's part of the game particularly of teams that push high you know so that that if i was going to you know start my own personal crusade <laughs> on anything, I'll start there ahead of diving. Well, you start that one off while uh, Dyche has his little <laughs> campaign on diving. But just finally on, on the subject of diving in the in the penalty box, um, I know as a fan, sometimes we get frustrated with our own players when you see an opportunity and you think, why didn't they go down? Because if they'd gone down, they might have won a penalty. So there is a responsibility on us as well. We kind of encourage it a little bit. But do managers often say, go down at the slightest touch? I think I think that varies, but I, I think overwhelming the an, the answer is yes. Mm. If if you have an opportunity to to go down in the box, that's the only place that would be encouraged to to do so. Yeah, um, and I think that's happening. That's happening more and more. I think if there's an opportunity, and like I say, some sometimes opportunities are being manufactured to go to go down. Players leaving their dangling a leg and almost almost kicking the defender to go over it. Or Harry Harry Kane against Arsenal, mm. you know, when you you the ball's in front of you and you deliberately slow your run, so yeah. in the hope of a defender banging you in the back, yeah. and then yeah. you can, you know, that's that's complete. That's that's as blatant to me as diving in the sense of contriving a foul out of actually mm. nothing. Mm. Well, on the pitch, 
Christian Pulisic marked his first league start since August with a hat-trick as Chelsea came away with that uh, 4-2 win at Turf Moor to make it seven straight wins in all competitions for Frank Lampard's side. So, how high can they finish under Lampard, Gregor? It's all going very well at the moment. It certainly is, yeah. I mean, increasingly, just because of the the kind of discomfort at, at Spurs and and Arsenal, uh, you feel like it's a battle between Chelsea and Leicester for for third and fourth and wh- which order they finish in, you know? Leicester look in great shape. I'm sure we're going to come on to speak to Pacific about them. Um and Chelsea as well. There seems to be goals, goals from everywhere. And until a sort of crazy end to the game at Turf Moor, they're looking a bit more solid defensively as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't. I openly said at the start, I didn't. I thought they were going to be the team that would probably be struggling to get into even the top six. So mm. I read it wrong. I read it wrong about Tammy Abraham. I'm sure a lot of people did as well. So they are surprising, uh, surprising a lot of people just now, as are Leicester. And I think. I just think that Arsenal and Spurs have got too much kind of off-field worries and Manchester United don't have a good enough team. Mm. So I think really they'll be battling out for the for third and fourth. Are Chelsea right then to be... Or Chelsea fans right to be optimistic? No, I, I mean, I, I agree with Gregor. I think no one would have seen that with Tammy Abraham, you know. Um, and, and if they can get the ban overturned and they can do a little bit of trading in January, then they could actually sort of perhaps and just take that step a bit a, you know another step forward really mm. um perhaps bring a striker in see what happens with Giroud um maybe another maybe another um midfield player um um but yeah I think credit Lampard because no no one would have seen how well he would have kind of quickly and, and no. quickly done especially early on because there were a lot of Chelsea fans on his case quite early on thinking is this right and we're not sure but you know the way he's brought Mount through, you know, fair play to him. Mm. Yeah, and I was—I mean, I was lucky enough to be in um, Amsterdam for the the Ajax win, and it was—I mean, obviously the win itself made headlines rightly, but I tell you, what most impressed me was just the the attitude of the team of of you know even when they were under pressure, someone like Jorginho who, you know, under Sarri did look you know could look ponderous and and a, a bit actually one dimensional, but suddenly he was there doing all the dirty jobs, um, you know suddenly looking a much more versatile, much more urgent player. And it, that just I think that's just a, a question of the manager instilling a different attitude in him, different sort of set of demands in him and, and him rising to that challenge. So I think, I think you know, Frank, is, as Gary says, is, is at the moment, I think what's most impressive is he seems to have a coherence about it. You can see what he's trying to do. You can see what he's trying to build. I think there will be some bumps in the road because it's a, mm. a young team. Um, but, you know, more than certainly say somewhere like Arsenal you see a coherence to it but they, look like, they look like they're playing for him don't they which actually sort yeah. of, you know, recent Chelsea managers have suddenly sort of turned quite quickly but as I think as Matt says it can see young teams that can Tammy Abraham play 40 odd games a season in his first season mm. at Chelsea like in, uh, regularly you, that's th- quite a lot you assume Giroud might be looking to jump, he, jump ship in January jump, you've got Batshuayi there who mm. Palace might want Palace are keen on. It's got eighteen months left, so there's kind of a few things in the background, um, and, and I think the other thing in his credit is that in the summer people said, you, you, get, "You know, why are you selling Louise? We could do with defenders." And he's made that decision, and actually, you know, it's worked out okay for him mm-hmm. so far. It's, he's taken those decisions, and so everything I think he's done, he's he's kind of profited from so far. So, 
all looking good for Frank Lampard and Chelsea then. Now on his travels around the country, this weekend Gregor's been to Southend United to see how Sol Campbell's been settling into life in League One. Perhaps expected that uh, the league leaders Ipswich were too good for them as they ran out 3-1 winners at Roots Hall on Saturday. But Gregor, were there any signs of encouragement for the Southend fans? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, at least they didn't concede seven goals as they did against Doncaster on Tuesday night when Sol Campbell was, was watching on from the stands. Um, 3-1 defeat, Ipswich obviously top of the league. It was a very challenging start for them, but uh, I was just quite kind of surprised to see how little expectation there is among the support for him to turn it around already, you know? Really? Yeah, I mean... What, they resigned to going down? I think down? so, yeah. I think they feel that it's the worst, you know, the worst circumstance the club's been in in 30 years was what the, the local Southend Echo reporter told me. Um, and there was one of the most kind of scathing editorials in a, in a fanzine I've ever read about this about the team and the group of players and how they were basically a disgrace to the badge. <laughs> so wow. um, I think a lot of people trace it back to the, a changeover in... Uh, their CEO, Steve Cavanagh, left from Millwall three years ago, was never replaced. And the chairman, Ron Martin, who's been there for two decades, kind of took all everything upon himself. And their dealings in the transfer market have been a disaster. So they're already eight points from safety, two points worse off, or they should be, than Bolton Wanderers, who started, they played their first handful of games with a youth team. Uh, so this is a bad side he has. Um, so, I mean, at least, like I say, there's not much expectation on his shoulders, but um, the same was true of when he when he went to Macclesfield last November. Uh, they were seven points adrift in League Two at the time. And against kind of all expectations, he, he kept them up in the last day of the season. So I think the fans are pleased to have him there simply because he, he showed last season that he he was he was very capable in, in similar circumstances. Mm. Um, but he's it's, it's got, a, I think it's a more difficult job, I think. It's not so. Macclesfield were a team who had one of the lowest budgets in League Two, um, but they had a bit of spirit because they won the National League the season before. They were quite together group. Whereas Southend, um, the, the the owner Ron Martin says they have a top six budget. It's just been spent awfully, and there's a lot of players who kind of look like they don't want to be there. So he's got a tough job on his hands. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Matt Dickinson and Gary Jacob. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And we'll be back on Thursday. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.